Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that you and I can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. There is a propensity to approach God's Word to back up what you already believe, but that's a surefire way to eventually be wrong. We want to search God's Word with the desire to know what it says so we can know what to believe. Our first question comes from, I think, Jari, where we've been in a lot of passages that are talking about the last days. And the question was asked, why did God wait so long? If He would have come sooner, it would have saved a lot of bad things from happening. So why is God waiting? And why is He waiting so long today? Uh, Well, Peter answers that question in 2 Peter. He says, God is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness. For to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Meaning, God lives outside of time. He's not bound by the time constraints that you and I are bound on. But then it goes on to say, but God desires that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, that's a really interesting statement. God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. Salvation is offered to everyone and they can make a commitment to him. And so God has not come back to judge this world, even though there are awful, horrible things that are being done that are worthy of judgment and are worthy of God's wrath. But he hasn't come back because he wants to see more people saved. The interesting thing about that for me is what kind of a heart should we have then for the lost? The Bible says in Psalms 126 that he who goes out weeping will rejoice bringing in the sheaves. When you go out into harvest and you're weeping, you're really heartfelt over those that are lost, then you come back in rejoicing. Remember, the church has a job. We have a a commission that we would go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. We are the light of the world. We've been guaranteed success. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so we are supposed to be occupying till he comes, planting seeds, watering seeds, as ambassadors imploring people to come to Christ. And that's why God has waited as long as he has. It's the same reason that he waited so long to judge the world in the days of Noah with the flood. Enoch was a prophet, had a son by the name of Methuselah. Methuselah means when he dies, it will take place. And when you map it out, and you can do the work yourself, just start with Adam and look at the day when Seth was born, and then just kind of keep going and go on to when Noah is 500 years old, and you find out that's when Methuselah dies, 969 years old, and that is the year that the flood came. So God says when he dies, it's going to take place, and then he lives longer than any man has ever lived, because God is more merciful than any man. God is more merciful, more gracious than you and I. Now, I think that if we were to take a poll of those who are watching right now, that many of you would not have come to Christ until recently. And which means that had God not waited so long, then you wouldn't have come to Christ. When I ask this question in a church service, it's amazing how many hands go up when I ask how many of you have come to Christ in the last 10 years. It's amazing how many people respond. So had Jesus come back just 10 years earlier 
in our own church, there's so many people who would not have come to Christ. So God is waiting so people can get saved. And that speaks to us about what our heart should be and that we ought to really be thinking about our job and the work that God is calling us to do, that you and I make sure that we are preaching the gospel to every creature, that we are praying for the people around us that don't know Christ. So we can come to the place where we see people surrender themselves to Christ and begin to live for him. So why has God waited so long? Because he wants to see more people saved. Now, remember, Jesus had said to the scribes and Pharisees, the blood of all the generations past are going to be put upon you because of their rejection of Jesus. So God held them responsible for all of the blood that had been shed. Doesn't mean the people that shed the blood before were responsible, but God held them to a higher account. And so it is with the last days. I think there's so many last days signs that God has given us in the scriptures for what the last days will be like, that the generation that rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects will have the wrath of God poured out on it for the last seven years. And we think, well, that's not fair, but it is fair. It's fair that God did that to show his wrath upon the nation only for seven days. It's on, on the world only for seven years because it is a sign of his grace and his mercy towards all of us. So I think it's, it's really easy to see. Now, I want to answer another question as well before we get to the questions that you guys are submitting now. And if you have a question, you're watching this for the first time, welcome. You can write your question out, put the word question or question mark or a or, or the our cue in front of it in quotes. And that way I can identify in the comment section what your question is and we can pull it up on the screen and we can look at it together. Um, but the other question uh, that I have is, um, trying to think what the other question that I had was. Uh, oh, oh, I know the other question that I got this week was why we spend so much time, why I spend so much time of my preaching talking about the last days. And, uh, the answer to that is because the Bible talks about it. When you think of the books that we've been in lately, we've been in Luke, and there's two major passages in Luke so far that have talked about the last days, Luke 17 and Luke 21. Then we were in on Wednesday nights before Galatians, which doesn't have a lot to say about the last days, kind of refers to a couple of things, but doesn't have a lot to say. But before that, we were in Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. Both of those cover a lot of last days issues. And now, of course, we're in the book of Revelation on Wednesday night, which we're going to be talking about the last days for from time to come. I think the fact that we talk about the end days when it comes up in Scripture is in contrast to a lot of churches that just will not talk about the last days at all. No matter what, they're just not going to talk about it. I don't know that I talk about it any more um, than what the Bible does but I do bring it up and I think that we're living in the last days. I think that the signs of the last days are upon us. And so we should be talking about it. I can't imagine if we wouldn't be talking about those things. Jesus talked about himself giving his life during the time that he was ministering. And I think God would want his ministers, his servants today to be talking about these things. So I think that was Jari that asked that question uh, and that we started off with today. Thanks, Jari, I appreciate that. And good to see you guys. 
uh, joining us today. If you have a question, then go ahead and submit your question, write the word question out, and then reread your question a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Also, if you have a Bible reference, try to include the Bible reference so we can take time to stop and look it up and put it up on the screen. So we have our first question today from Kay. Kay, you got the first question. Kay, good to see you. She says, after the flood of Noah, the Bible says that every living thing was wiped out and killed. Were evil spirits and Nephilim, were they killed? What happened to the spirits during that time? Uh, so um, I wish I had the passage that you were talking about, every living thing being wiped out and killed. Um, I really wish we'd be able to look that up. Sometimes, okay, when you, the answer to a question can be looked at when you look at the text a little bit closer and you look at it in context to see exactly what is being said. Uh, were evil spirits and Nephilim wiped out? And the, the Nephilim, the mighty ones of old, seem to be the, the result of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which is the sons of God seeing the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And in fact, let me go ahead and pull that up since we're talking about whether or not the Nephilim were destroyed. There's really a larger question here, and that is whether or not God destroyed the world because of the Nephilim. And uh, some people do uh, do believe that. And let's see, I actually wanna go to, yeah, six. Um, yeah, so let me put this up on the screen here. We'll take a look at this and we'll talk a little bit more about the Nephilim. It says, now it came to pass when mighty men began to, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and took wives for themselves of all they chose. Now, sons of God here has traditionally been thought to be angels. And we see that in the book of Job when the sons of God presented themselves before um, Yahweh, Satan was among them. The opposer was among them and they end up having a conversation about Job. So he's called the sons of God. There's also another reference in the morning stars and the sons of God shout for joy at the foundations of the world in the book of Job. And uh, so this seems strange that you have fallen angels that are marrying women, producing babies. Let's go on to what it says here. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives to themselves of all that they had chosen. And the Lord said, my spirit will not strive with men forever for he indeed is flesh yet his day shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So this is where we get our word Nephilim from, mighty, mighty men. And it certainly seems like they are connected. A couple of things here. Uh, I, do think, I do think this passage has to do with fallen angels. And we know that there's some New Testament passages that talk about those that didn't keep their proper abode during the time of Noah were put into chains reserved for judgment. So God did not tolerate these angels doing this. Um, did they, we don't know exactly what happened here. We aren't given enough information. Did they take on human bodies? We know that angels can do that. Some entertain angels unaware, but Jesus said that angels don't marry and aren't given in marriage, but their spirits, and when they make a physical body, does that physical body have sex organs? That's the question. And I don't think that we know that. 
the angels that appear appeared to people in human form, how like human form were they when they appeared to them? And were they functional? That's the question. Now, there are a lot of people on right off the bat that say, no, no way. There's no way that that could be the case. But we just don't know. Also, these could have been men who were possessed by demonic spirits. And the suggestion is that the giants that came in the land in those days were some kind of genetic altering that Satan was able to do. Hey, we're just now learning in science how to do genetic altering. And some have connected that Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the coming of the Son of Man. There's genetic altering in those days, it seems, and there is in our day as well. So the question has been that if these are, if these are possessed men and the mighty men came from them, then they would have the souls of men. And so they would have been wiped out and died just like everyone else if they are angels and, and it's some kind of a hybrid between an angel and a human, and I don't know that that's the case. I'm not saying it is or isn't. There, there are a lot of things that I got to shrug my shoulders at and go, I don't know. But if it was, then it's been suggested that the spirits of the Nephilim then wouldn't be like men's spirits and that they are the, the evil spirits that were around during the days of Jesus. I personally do not believe this. I, I don't believe that those spirits, it's possible. Think about it. If there was a spirit that wasn't human, that those spirits were just going to go away or the souls, maybe they were more animalistic or, or who, who knows exactly what was happening, but does every animal that has lived have a consciousness after it dies? Now, some suggest yes. Uh, some have said dogs do and cats don't. I'm not saying that, but some have suggested that dogs do and cats don't. But um, I'm joking. Okay, that was just a joke. Uh, but these things we just don't know. And so I, I think that not every little. Um, I would I would love to see the scripture. I would love to be able to look it up, but I I don't have time to look it up right now. Um, obviously, bacteria lived. Obviously, smaller animals lived. Obviously animals that were in the water lived and didn't have to be taken up on the ark. So every living thing wiped out, it would probably says every living thing on the earth was wiped out. And I don't know that that would include evil spirits. So hopefully that's helpful. Okay. I know that's kind of a long way around to talk about it. Um, we still have a lot of questions about the Nephilim, the Rephidium, the giants that were in the land in those days that are in the land, were in the land after that. Were there other angels that didn't keep their proper abode and God seems to take them off of the scene? Remember when the legion ran towards Jesus of demons in a man and said, have you sent, come to send us to the pit before our time? So it seems like they know that they've got to keep a certain line. And if they don't, they will be sent to a place of holding until the day of judgment. All right, Kay, thank you very much for your question. I really appreciate that. We have our, our next question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari, you kind of snuck in two questions today because you asked me a question about um, why did God wait so long? So now we got another one. Um, will false Christians be the ones to usher in the Antichrist? Kind of like Pharisees stood by the emperor when Jesus was crucified. Could the Antichrist be a Pharisee? Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jari, I appreciate that. Um, 
let's take your last part of that question first. Could the Antichrist be a Pharisee? Uh, no, I don't think he could be a Pharisee because I don't think he's a religious leader. I think he's a political leader. The false prophet is the religious leader that whips up the fervor of people to worship the Antichrist, the, the beast that's in the newly rebuilt temple, the abomination of desolation. Um, so could false Christians us usher in the Antichrist? Uh, I don't know about ushering in. I'm not sure what, what, what is meant by ushering in. Could they receive him? Could they accept him? Um, sure. But remember, it's political. He's a political person. So he's going to do something. He's going to do some things political that are going to give him worldwide recognition. And then he's going to be accepted as a miracle worker. And then he's going to be killed or shot. He should have died. But the fatal wound will be healed. And that will give him incredible political power. You know, talk about October surprises. Imagine if right before his election, he is shot and then he, he uh, supernaturally recovers from it. How many people will vote for him? How many people will see him as some kind of a savior object, which is what the Antichrist is uh, during that time? So I don't know, Jari, that I would say that false Christians are going to usher him in, although I think the false Christians will accept him. I think that we have, we'll have the one world government, the reestablishment of the one world Roman government, the, the clay and the iron mixed from the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and the Antichrist will be the ruler that will eventually come out of that, that will be given the great mouth to speak blasphemies, and he'll make a peace treaty with many for seven days. Israel, it's talking about Israel in Daniel chapter 9. And that will usher in the last seven-year period. In the middle of that, he will do the abomination of desolation. It's interesting how much of this stuff we know. So that people who are alive in that day, if they are interested in it, they can find out what the Bible has to say about these particular things. Uh, all right. So thank you very much. I appreciate that, uh, Jari. Uh, we have another question here from RW. RW, good to have you here with us. Um, let's see. Um, are you familiar with E.T. Sefer Bible, and what is your opinion of it? I have a family member reading this Bible, and it concerns me. Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, no, I'm not familiar with it. Let me just look it up here real quick. Just give a second to pull it up here. Let's take a look at what it says about it. Um the Sefer Divine Book, Sefer Millennium Edition, the Sefer Bible. Got questions? Got questions? Is a great uh, is a great place to go. Um, let me see. I might be able to put this up on the screen, and we can read it together. Just see what God Question has to say. I might have to do a little bit of finagling here because I haven't done this for a while. Oops, I don't think. Uh, oh, I don't think I have that anymore. All right. Um, I think I can share. Let me get back to my default screen. Uh, but I don't really have it set up. All right, let me just read what it says here. All right. The Sefer Bible referred uh, to as, uh, or the, the Sefer, sometimes referred to as the Sefer Bible, is a non-scholarly work that claims to restore many missing books, phrases, and chapters in the Bible. The book is officially called Eth Sefer, from the Hebrew word for divinity, our book. The publishers claim that they will, that they do not call their work a Bible. However, they refer to the, mere, uh, the material 
incessantly as biblical. In every other aspect, for all intents and purposes, the Sefer is a custom tradition com um, of the Bible, save calling it the Bible directly. That's exactly what the Sefer, how Sefer is marketed. Um, the Sefer can be fairly described as a non-scholarly based information form, uh, its own publishers. The work is not produced by quality scholars through uh, an action process of translation. First, the authors added books that they determined missing from the Orthodox Bible. All right, so you guys can go look it up on Got Questions and, and go from there. I think I got enough to be able to at least answer some of your questions here. Um, all right, RW, uh, thank you for your question. Yeah, the, the manuscripts of the Bible that are put together and then put into a translation by scholars and traditionally it's 70. And I think that's just because the King James Bible had 70 scholars. That's what I think. And so tradition, they'll try to get 70 scholars to look over these things, kind of carry the weight of determining what should be in and what shouldn't be in it. We have really good later translations of the Bible, the NASB 2020, really good translation. The King James itself is a good translation. It's just hard to understand and read. The New King James um, is a good translation that comes from the same set of manuscripts the King James comes from. The NIV, the ESV use more of the newer found manuscripts and is often criticized by the King James only people, which I do not believe is true. I don't believe the King James Bible is the only one. I think the manuscripts were given to us to preserve uh, the entire word of God and that groups like this are not biblical and should not be read. Um, I don't know exactly. I don't know enough about it to know. Um, it's, it's something that I am going to take a little bit more of a look at this um, E.T. Sefer, uh, and, and I will take a little bit, a little better look at it. Um, but from what I read on Got Questions, I would stay as far away from that as possible. And there's no reason. The Bible is so rich and there's so much that's in it. It's amazing to me when I, I we, we teach through the Bible, we go line by line, verse by verse. It's amazing to me how when I get into a section that I find so much there that I just can't cover all of it. Even in small little sections, there's just so much that's there that you can look and cross-reference. This week, I'm doing a study uh, tonight about uh, defending the pre-tribulation rapture because Jesus in Luke 21 says, pray that you would be counted worthy to escape all these things that'll come to pass on the earth. And I just wasn't able to fit it into the study last week. And so I added it into this week uh, but I think it's really good to defend it because what are we praying to escape? So there's just so much that's there that you don't need to go to these other things. Uh, there's so much that's in the scriptures. I can tell you, teaching through the book of Galatians here again recently, we started the church in 1985. We've been through the book of Galatians probably now four times, maybe five times. And I found it to be richer this time through than ever before. It's almost like God just continues to show you more and more. And the more you know about the rest of the Bible, the more you grow as a Christian and learn more about the rest of the Bible, the more you find in Scripture and you just stay away from things like this, especially adding books to the Bible, not claiming to be Scripture. That right there would tell me they're trying to speak with authority without being Scripture, and I would stay away from it, RW. Oh, and um, you said family members reading the Bible. It concerns me. So for your family member, I would start praying for them and pray for an opportunity to share your concerns. They're free, right? And they can read it if they want to. 
but look for an opportunity in a loving way without letting it get heated to share your concerns. And if it does get heated, then just back away from it, right? If it gets heated, then just go, um, okay, well, you know, you're, you're free to do what you want to do. You don't have to, um, you don't have to do what I say. And I, I don't think that we're called to quarrel anyway. I think we want to encourage people in the truth and, um, but not to do it in a, in an angry way or, or, a, um, an inagreeable way, unagreeable way. All right. So thank you, RW, for that. Um, a little bit of information that I learned, just taking time to look that up. Thank you. Um, so we have a question from Raquia. Raquia, good to see you. Raquia says, hi, in regard to the restrainer that is taken away at the beginning of the tribulation, is this the Holy Spirit that dwells in believers? If so, is this why the restrainer is taken? Okay, so... Um, what is the passage? Is that Second uh, Thessalonians two? Let me just take a quick look and see if I can find it. That passage, I think it's Second Thessalonians chapter two. Second um, Thessalonians two. Um, let me see. Mm, I'm just not sure if I'm going to be able to find it all. Let me just go ahead and talk about it here. Um, thank you, Require. I appreciate uh, your question. Let's take a look at it. Um, the restrainer is taken away. So the Bible says that that which restrains will be removed. Some believe that this is the great falling away, the apostasia. We also know that in the last days, men will leave their faith. Faith will become rare upon the earth and a lot of Christians will fall away. So there seems to be two different events that are referred to. One of them is the rapture of the church where the church is taken. Now, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And so we stop corruption. People around us hold back from doing things because we are in the world. And when the church is taken out of the way, then imagine the, the church will not be around to restrain in any way, shape or form. I just think about the church and their involvement in voting. When they're gone and you have that voting block of genuine Christians gone, what kind of things will be passed? in in that time uh so yeah um when the restrainer is taken away at the beginning of the tribulation period is it the spirit that indwells believers yes it is the spirit that indwells the believers we have the holy spirit in us the holy spirit doesn't leave because the holy spirit's still here people can still get saved they're still going to be able to commit themselves to christ interestingly enough i don't think they'll be part of the bride when you see the souls of those beheaded for their faith that are up in heaven, they're under the altar and they're given crowns, but they don't have a restored body. God doesn't resurrect their bodies until the end of the tribulation. And we don't know why God does exactly what God does, but the Holy Spirit will still be here, but the church will be gone. And what do we as a church do? We restrain. So I don't know if as a Christian, you've ever been at a family meal and someone cusses and they tell you, I'm sorry. And and I, I like to say a couple of things. I like to say, don't worry about it. I didn't get any on me, depending on how bad it was. Or I'd like to say, it's not me you got to worry about. Just kind of reminding them, you will one day have to answer to the living God. Um, but um, is this why the restrainer is taken? I think the restrainer is taken to give man the... So we're living in the church age now. In the church age, we are his light. 
the gates of hell don't prevail against us. We are ambassadors for him. But in the last seven years, it's a time of Jacob's trouble and he will be saved out of it, Jeremiah 37 says. So it's not the time of the church. It's, it's, it's the time, it's the 70th week of Daniel. There've been 69 weeks where God worked with Israel to finish everything. There's one week left, that's the 70th week of Daniel. And so the church is not gonna be there because it doesn't have anything to do with us. And that's why from chapter six in the book of Revelation until chapter 19, you do not see the church at all. But it's mentioned how many times, 20 something times before that, in the first three, chap three um, yeah, chapters, the church is mentioned. Then you don't find it anywhere in the tribulation period. And then after the tribulation period, suddenly you find the church again that is glorified and up in heaven with the marriage supper of the Lamb and all. So, yeah, um, I think that we're taken out of the way because God's working with the nation of Israel and they're going to be saved out of it. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, that I don't want you to be ignorant, brother. And he says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so I think that the rapture will happen when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And um, as we talked about here this last week, the rapture is a smaller event among a larger event of the resurrection of the saints. The Bible says, and God will bring with him those who sleep in Christ. So it seems like those who are alive, that the dead in Christ rise first and that those are the, um, those are the church I had said last week that it was all the way back to Adam and Eve and David and all of them. And then I got rethinking that out of the passage because the passage itself says that he brings with him those who have, uh, have who sleep in Christ. And then they are the dead in Christ rise first and they have their glorified bodies. And then we are changed or we are caught up and meet the Lord in the air. First Corinthians tells us that we change at that point. And um, so then we are gone and we're out of the way for the next few years. Um, by the way, just as a kind of a side note, and this is kind of a side note from your question, Require, um, someone asked me again how God could reconstruct a body completely. And um, I think it's pretty important to remember, first of all, God can operate in the supernatural realm. And so God can do the supernatural. It might be impossible for me to reconstruct a body that's been, been scattered over the ocean and eaten by fish but God can do it. But secondly, God can reconstruct a body through DNA and it would be the same body. Uh, materialistically, there were the material that would be from it. So how exactly this is done, uh, I'm not sure. So why am I talking about the rapture? All uh, because, yeah, is this why the restrainer is taken out of the way? I think the restrainer is taken out of the way to let the world do what the world's gonna do in complete rebellion towards God and that we have a job to do and that is to keep people keep letting, bringing people to Christ and being salt and being that light, the restrainer and being light here with the Holy Spirit inside of us. So yes, I do believe that um, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer is the Holy Spirit within the church and that the Holy Spirit will be here because people will be able to continue to be saved. Okay, thanks, Require. I appreciate that question. We have another question here um, from Kara. Kara says, in the Old Testament, was it Lucifer's angels who came and lusted after women and had sex with them, and they had giants on the earth. I hope I'm stating it right. You are, Cara, and we talked about this a little bit at the beginning of our study. Um, 
and we can we'll, we'll go ahead and talk about it again. I'm going to see if I've got my notes on this that I can bring up here. Let me go ahead and take a look at this. I got to think about what I what I entitle my note I, I, um, on it. I think I did Genesis six. Uh, okay, let me just cancel this and just take a look down here over my notes. I bring it up periodically. Uh, I wanted to look at the passages that actually talk about this. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to find my notes on this. I'll have to I'll pull them back up again uh, because this is just a common question that we have. Um, so there's two different ideas, Kara. One is that the sons of God are the descendants of Cain and that they look at the women who are the descendants of Seth. And they, and because God didn't want the descendants of Cain, which were city dwellers to intermingle mingle with the descendants of Seth, who really did serve God and followed God, that God was upset when they got married. And that this argument, I think states, it's not my position, so I think states that the Nephilim were just on the earth coincidentally, that they're mentioned there in the same passage, but they're not connected with it. I wanna go to Genesis six again. We just read this, but let's read it again, more with what you're asking in mind. Um, was it Lucifer's angels? Now, so this is fallen angels. So you've got angels and you've got fallen angels. And let me go ahead and bring it up on the screen again, and let's read it and just kind of break it apart some, a little bit better. So it says, it came to pass when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them. So first of all, I'm just looking at this passage and I'm trying to decipher whether it is talking about the daughters of, of Seth and the sons of Cain. It says now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. It doesn't say when the descendants of Cain <clears throat> began to multiply on the earth and the daughters were born unto them or the men, the, the, men, the, the, peop, the men of Seth and daughters were born to them. It doesn't say that. It just says the men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So at face value, I don't know. And, and that's a later argument anyway, later in church history, because it seems so weird that angels, fallen angels could marry women and have children. Verse two, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, so here, here we have the sons of God again mentioned, sons of God in the Bible, the only other place they're mentioned, they're mentioned as, or, the only other place are mentioned in this kind of a context, they're mentioned as angels. And, and that's in Job. And she saw the daughters of men. Now it doesn't say again, it doesn't say the daughters of Seth. It just says the daughters of men. And they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, as I said earlier, this may be demon possessed men who are possessed by, by fallen angels, sons of gods. It might be sons of God that can manifest themselves into human form. And if they can manifest themselves into human form, and we know angels can do that because some entertain angels unaware, that's got to be a pretty good manifestation to, to manifest to angels unaware, then how complete is their body? And is it sexually functional? And then can they have some kind of an offspring? Now, all these are questions that I don't know all the, I don't know the answers to. But I do know what the Bible says, and I wish I could find my passages um, on it because it really does make it clear that these were spirits that didn't keep their own home in the days of Noah, and God put them into chains of judgment. 
So we don't got to worry about angels running around doing this today. First of all, God would not keep them in a certain place if that was the case. And secondly, um, well, God wouldn't keep them, keep them around. He held them in judgment for not keeping their proper abode. So I don't think it's anything that we have to worry about. All right. So, um, RW, I hope that answers your question. Um, you can go back and listen to the first part of this too. I think I got into a little bit more um, information right there in the very beginning. So uh, we have a question from uh, WMB. Uh, Malachi 4, 6, and 5, is the earth promised still to come, or was it John the Baptist? Oh, um, is oh, the earth, is Elijah, is the Elijah. Thank you. Um, it's funny that I called that the earth. All right, let me start again. Uh, Malachi 4, 5, and 6, is the Elijah promised, uh, promised still to come, or was it John the Baptist? Why do so many people like William Branham try to say that they are the end time prophet? I think William Branham said he was a, it was Elijah. And a lot of other uh, Pentecostal teachers have said, starting in the Azusa Street Revival, that they were Elijah. So let's, let's talk about this. First of all, let's take a look at the passage. Let's find Malachi. All right, let me get back here again. So, um, Malachi or Malachi, and I think it was four, five, four, and four and five, four, five, and six, four, Malachi four, five, and six. So let's put this up on the screen. Let's take a look at it and then we'll answer your questions. We'll just, um, and we'll go from there. So it says, um, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so this is the promise of the coming of Elijah. Now, John the Baptist is said to have come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus said, John the Baptist was Elijah, if you can handle it, but Elijah is going to come which means that John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. So Elijah was taken up alive into a whirlwind. The only, yeah, the only two men that ever, that ever died, that didn't die, were Elijah and Enoch. Those are the only two. And so Elijah's going to return. And John the Baptist was a type because he was a forerunner of Christ. So during the tribulation, uh, during the tribulation period, you will have Elijah who will be a type of Christ, John the Baptist. It's believed that he might be one of the two witnesses, that that may be Elijah coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord, and then he's going to turn the hearts of people. They, they minister in the midst of Jerusalem. So it's possible that it is those two that are ministering. Um, why do so many people like William Branham say that they are the end, um, are the end time prophet? Um, deception. I think William Branham was a false prophet. He declared people healed who were not. He prayed for people and then said, God told me you are healed. He is not a prophet. There are some prophecies that still haven't come true. He prophesied that there would be a woman president. Given enough time, that's pretty easy prophecy to fulfill. It will happen. There will one day be a woman president. Doesn't make William Branham a prophet. William Branham denied the deity. He, he denied the, the, the Trinity as we teach the Trinity. So we believe in 
the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three being one in essence, but each individually as God. So there's one God, three persons. So Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, but the Father is 100% or fully God. Holy Spirit is fully God. Jesus is fully God. William Branham didn't believe that. A lot of other people get weird in their theology about Jesus, but this is our test for orthodoxy. And the church has done a lot of work and the scriptures have laid out for us exactly what the Bible has to say. And out of that Pentecostal movement, and I, I don't have a problem, I don't have a difficulty with Pentecostals today. It's just that the Pentecostalism in the early 1900s and mid 1900s had a lot of really strange things that came out of it. Um, Jim Jones was involved in Pentecostalism for a while, ended up becoming the people's leader in, in uh, people's temple in Guyana, killed 900 and something people. Other people have claimed to be Elijah. It's pretty amazing how how you can manipulate people to believe it because i know people today who still believe that william branham was elijah he died in 60 something and they still believe that that he's elijah and so that absolutely amazes me i'm looking up when william branham died I think he died in 60, yeah, 65, December 24th of 65. And so the people still believe to this day that he was Elijah. It'll tell you how strong these delusions are. And probably because there are demonic spirits that are behind them, doctrines of demons. And um, no, there, Elijah will return and it will be during the tribulation period. And um, it seems kind of weird, but I think that it is... Um, that's just kind of the way things are. Um, so require, um, yeah, require has another question. Let's go ahead and bring this in. Um, I think it's a, a, a follow-up question. Hi again. In the New Testament, Jesus often freed demon-possessed people, and Jesus calls them out. Where did they go? In Mark five thirteen, as an example, do the demons go back to hell and try to or, or um, go back to hell or try to possess others. All right, thanks for quiet. As we continue to talk about, we were talking about um, Nephilim and, and evil spirits. Jesus said that an evil spirit wants to be in a body. Um, that and, and when they're cast out, if the body's cleaned, they go find seven worse than them and they bring it back into the person. And remember that Mary Magdalene had seven demons cast out of her. So there can be multiple demons. Legion is one example of that. And they are looking for a place to dwell. And I don't know during the days of Jesus what you had to do to open up, to be able to have demons possess you. But I know in the days that we live as Christians, you cannot be possessed. They are not in hell now. Hell is, there needs to be a lot of work done on clarifying what hell is. Hell, the, the lake of fire death and and hades the grave and the holding place for the dead that are not in christ are thrown into the lake of fire and the bible uses the word gehenna translated hell um then there's the lake of fire so there just needs to be some some clarity on hell and i really want to do a teaching here fairly soon on it um i don't know that 
the way people think about hell because it's just not taught about. I think it's not taught about because people don't want to teach it because they think it'll turn people off. Um, and there are those who say, I'm not going to follow a God who would send people to hell. Well, maybe if we clarified what the Bible has to say about hell, it wouldn't turn people off. Maybe people would understand it better. So we need to have some just good teaching on it. Um, I saw that, uh, and I haven't looked at it yet, but I, I generally like what he does. And um, that is Frank Turek. I saw that he had something on hell that was fairly lengthy. And um, I want to watch it, just kind of see what he has to say on it. And um, I'm planning on doing something at some point here pretty soon where we break it down just because we say hell and there's there's several different words in the Bible for it. There's several different things the Bible says about life after death and the end of mankind, which um, which is eventually the end of unbelieving mankind, which eventually is in the lake of fire, destruction in the lake of fire. And um, again, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done on it because there's so much confusion on it. All right. So, but yeah, demon, uh, as far as I understand demons, um, they're, they're the enemies. We're doing battle against them today, Require. The Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and a spiritual host of wickedness. So we are to put on our armor. Make sure that you have your heart protected with the breastplate of righteousness, your mind protected with the helmet of salvation. In your hands, you have the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and the faith to put out the fiery darts of the enemy, your feet prepared with the gospel. So everywhere you go, you're preaching the gospel, the belt of truth, you're seeking truth. And you have the belt of truth on, which is going to keep you away from the false teachings of the enemy. And then the Bible says, stand and pray. So I don't believe that they go back to hell. I don't know that they're just trying to possess people. I think there's a spiritual battle going on over the souls of men and women and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. All right. So thank you, Require, for that question. Hopefully that answers those questions. I think it's a lot more than just what we think. Good to see you, Keith, here, by the way. And um, good to see uh, you, Daniel. Um, and uh, let's see. We have a question from uh, Rod. Rod says, when we get to heaven, will we instantly have more understanding or will we still be learning? I think, Rod, we can make the case that we will not suddenly have all knowledge. I think we'll know a lot more. Um, I think our minds will be incredibly crisp. Um, if someone with a higher IQ has a crisper mind, being able to recall better, then it will be nice to be able to not think where was that at, but to know where something is at. So I think that we're going to know a lot more, but I do think we're still going to be learning, maybe even throughout all of history. I mean, th maybe throughout all of eternity. There's just so much about God that we don't know and that we will be learning. Um, I know that in God's presence is a fullness of joy. N never have I heard that there's a fullness of understanding. And I think there are passages to talk about learning, but I can't recall them right now, talking about having an IQ high enough to be able to recall things. Um, I can't recall what those passages are right now. So thanks, Rod. I appreciate that. I think we will still be learning. I don't think we'll know everything instantly um, when we get up into the presence of God. All right. So we have a question here from Kimberly. Kimberly says, Hi, Pastor. Matthew 3, 7 through 9 in the Bible study this week. Uh, this was discussed, and they said, if there is no fruit, 
there is no real repentance or salvation. What is the difference between works and fruit? All right, thanks, Kimberly. I appreciate that. So let's go ahead and look this up. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. And we'll then we'll take a look at your question. I'm going to get this up and read it first. Matthew 3, 7 through 9. Matthew 3, 7. Let me get this up on the screen for you. We'll take a look at it here. It says, but when he saw, let me show Matthew 3, and when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to be baptized, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our fathers. For I say to you that God is able to rise up children of Abraham from these stones. All right, great passage. John the Baptist preaching and the scribes and Pharisees come to him and he ends up rebuking, rebuking them. So, um, Kimberly, you asked in the Bible study this week, discussed, and they said it was because they had no fruit. So John the Baptist is saying, bring the fruits of repentance. And then, um, you bring the fruits of repentance. Let's see, what does he say? Let me see how he says it again here. Um, okay, therefore, bring the fruits of repentance and uh, do not think to yourself, we are Abraham, our fathers. So let's talk about these particular, particular guys, these religious leaders that are coming to be baptized. And John baptized unto repentance. So now repentance is a change of mind. I'm, I'm, I'm living for myself. I've got some sin in my life and I realize I need to get rid of it. And so I want to stop living that way. And so you change your mind. Maybe there's been something in your life that changed when you changed your mind. That's repentance. And the fruits of repentance would be that you've changed your mind, that you are no longer doing the things that you were doing before. This is not works that saves you. The Bible says we've been saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It is the, the evidence that you have indeed changed your mind. That's the repentance. Uh, an example of this is the thief on the cross. So, Kimberly, we have the thief on the cross and he mocks Jesus. And um, both of them do. And then one of them finally says, will you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? So some there, some time there on the cross and also the one thief before he says that rebukes the other one for mocking Jesus. But we also know they both, they both mocked him. So somewhere along the line, that thief on the cross had to change his mind. And the evidence or the fruit that he had changed his mind was that he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So this change of mind, this repentance, this changing brought faith where he asked Christ to remember him and he was remembered because of that. So that's really important to us. Now, let's just talk about someone who's struggling. Someone in their life is a mess. They've got behavioral issues. Maybe they've even got addictions and they realize I can't live this way anymore. And so they determine to change their mind, but they don't have the power to be able to overcome their behavioral issues or their addictions. And so they don't completely change their life, but they want to. And there are signs, there's fruits of the evidence, but there's also failure because they don't have what it takes. And they come to Christ and they ask for forgiveness. They wouldn't be rejected. When you think of these scribes and Pharisees, what were they coming to John the Baptist for? Why did they come to John the Baptist? They came to him because they wanted to see what he was doing. They thought they were superior. They weren't coming to be baptized. They were coming to be baptized 
for their own personal reasons, not for any reason that that was a legitimate reason. And so he says, bring the fruits of repentance and the fruits of repentance would be the signs that you have really repented. So I'm sure that these are some of the things that you had, um, that you guys talked about in your Bible study. Um, and what makes them different than works is when you're doing works, you're doing them to be saved, but you do works as fruit. So it's like the cart before the horse. So if I suddenly walk in love, because I think if I walk in love, then I'm going to be saved. Then that's works for salvation. But if I come to Christ and then I learn that I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength of my neighbor as myself. And now I walk in love. It's fruits that came from salvation. And works can only go so far anyway. You can only do certain works to be able to, you know, sooner or later works are going to fall short. And works can't save you anyway. You can't even after you're saved, you can't do enough works to be saved. But the evidence that you've really made a commitment to Christ are that your life has changed. You're doing the commandments. You're keeping the things that God wants you to keep. Doesn't mean you do it all the time because the Bible says in John one, if anybody says that they don't sin, they're a liar and the truth ain't in you. And so we do know we sin. So we don't keep his commandments all the time, but we want to and we do because we love him and we are following him. And those are the fruits that come from salvation. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. Kimberly, I'm uh, good, glad to hear that you've got a Bible study going on, um, knowing God's word and, and doing it brings such blessings into our lives. All right. So uh, we have another question from uh, Brandon. Uh, Brandon says, Brandon says, can we assume the book of Revelation is part uh, literal and part metaphor? All right, good question, Brandon. Uh, so the book of Revelation has some weird stuff in it, right? You've got a beast that comes riding up out of the water that has a harlot that's riding his back. And these represent certain things. And so that would be metaphor, that would be analogies. You've also got things that are very literal in the book of Revelation. And so you got to kind of make a decision as you're reading through it. Is And we talked about this, I think, in one of our previous Q&As. Is Wormwood, this asteroid that hits the Earth, is that literal? Is it literally an, an asteroid? Or did it just look like it? It says it looked like a star and hits the Earth. Uh, and, and you have to kind of make a decision. And I think there are some basic rules of hermeneutics, which these are rules of Bible study, that need to be followed here, Brandon. And the first one is that God says what he means and means what he says. So when God says something, you first of all, look for the literal sense. The actual hermeneutical law is if the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense. And then you look deeper if you can't make sense of it. In other words, if the book of Revelation said, and I saw an angel sitting on a chair and the angel said to me, now the fact that the angel is sitting may mean something, but we assume at that point, that's just a chair. Was an angel really sitting on a chair? Well, he said he saw an angel sitting on a chair. And, and that, but Revelation doesn't say that. I'm just using this as an example. All right, this is my analogy. Um, but if it said, if the if Revelation said, and I saw a flaming, jewel-studded chair in the heavens, and he who sat on it was an angel, 
and the angel brought forth doom on the earth. Now you start to go, well, that's not a normal chair. And, and we've been accused when we approach the book of Revelation and Daniel like this of picking and choosing what we want to take literal and what we don't. But I think it's pretty easy to see. There's times when something's literal and there's times when it's not. And there's times when you go, I don't know. For example, in Revelation chapter four, it says, and I saw a door open in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. Is that door that was open and the trumpet and the voice saying, come up here, a type of the rapture of the church? That would be an analogy. Or was it literally just an opening up in heaven and a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here. Now, the very next thing that you see is every tongue, tribe, and nation before the throne of God in the book of Revelation. And so it seems like, I, I, I do believe that's where the rapture of the church is. So you've got to look at it, you've got to make some decisions, and you got to be willing to go, you know what, I looked at that, I thought that was right, but it was wrong. I have no problem in thinking one thing about a certain passage and then changing my mind on it. I'll give you an example of something that I did this last week. So in our study last week, we were talking about the rapture of the church being a smaller part of the resurrection. And I made a made mention that the resurrection, this is the resurrection of the saints, all the saints from the beginning of the world. Then I'm studying the passage further this week, and I noticed that the passage in Thess 1 Thessalonians says that he brought with him all of those who slept in Christ, and then the dead in Christ rise first. And so I started to question whether or not what I said was accurate. And so I went back and I started looking at passages and I kind of came to the conclusion from different passages on the resurrection. I did some, some in-depth study on the resurrection this week and uh, that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation period before the millennium. And that what I said last week that everybody, so that's in one week by looking at the scriptures changing my mind, the scriptures changing my mind since we don't know 100% of what the Bible says, and sometimes even though we might know it, something like, you know, when he brings with him those in Christ and the dead and Christ rise first, just not emphasizing the dead in Christ, you just look at it and think, well, that's a resurrection. It must be all the people resurrected. But then as you look at it further, more things come to you. And maybe there's somebody who would have read it and gone, yeah, or maybe when I said it, I'm sure there were people who were like, yeah, I don't think it's everybody. I think it's just those in Christ. But we want to be, humble enough to be able to say, I'm not sure what that means. Or it might mean, mean something different than what I think. So when we do it, we prayerfully interpret the scriptures. We look at metaphors and analogies. We make our decisions about the things that are there. And if we need to change our mind, we change our mind. That We, we, we compare scripture to scripture, which means you're comparing the things that you know. And that's why sometimes talking to people that know more than you can be really, really helpful. And I have a couple of people that I call periodically when I've got questions that are kind of tough questions I need to look at that have known, uh, one of them knows Greek and Hebrew really well. Another one, just I respect him so much for his interpretation of scripture and what he knows about the Bible. And so I'll call him and ask him questions. And it's good to have that in your life because sometimes we need help to be able to see things. All right. So this brings us to the end of our Q&A. Um, these hours sure do seem to go fast. Um, we, I see a couple of questions here. 
uh, all right, so, um, and I, I'll look at this later. As I said before, I get this log sent to me and I look first at this log for questions to answer in an up and coming Q&A. So I will look at these questions that have been asked and submitted. So they just won't go to, to waste unless I decide not to. And then you can come back again and you can look at them later on. I do appreciate you guys. I appreciate you being here. Stay close to Jesus. Love God's word. Be in love with his word. Rightly divide the word of God. Walk humbly with your Lord and he will exalt you for his sake. All right. And I see John P. You have a question as well. So there's uh, a few questions here that I've been able to get to. Sorry about that. Um, we will be doing this again, Lord willing, on Wednesday uh, at four o'clock. And um, we'll also have uh, our second study in the book of Revelation. We'll begin to get the vision of Jesus. Remember, this is the unveiling of Jesus. And so we're going to learn more about Jesus than we did in the rest of Scripture as we continue to see Jesus unveiled. All right. So I love you. Stay close to Jesus. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Um, may God work in you. And may you have a heart that wants to hear what God wants you to do. That you would say to him, do whatever you want to do within me and help me. Search me like the psalmist. Search me, O God. Know my ways. Try me. See if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So God bless you guys. It's been great spending some time with you. Uh, love you. We will see you later on. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. Uh, we are going to be talking about defending the rapture of the church out of Luke 21 before we go on to Luke 22 and talk about the passion of Christ. We will start getting into it right after that. The very next study is about Judas and um, his making a decision to betray Jesus. All right, God bless you. We'll talk to you later on. I'm out.